right, welcome to the Growing the Fishes podcast, episode 172. It's been quite the quite the week. Um, sorry about the uh, the delay there. Um, I was very busy last week. I was traveling through Canada, traveling through California. Ended up getting a staph infection somehow on the way. So that was a lot of fun. So. Just getting back to uh, the realm of living. So we didn't have time to book a guest this week. So, uh, and uh, Marty and I will be teaching on Thursday. So I think we'll just do a a quick chime in on Thursday. But um, Marty and I are thinking it'd be cool to do a a Cannabis 101 class today and and, uh, just take some other Q&A questions. We had a lot of um, really awesome feedback from last week's uh, Q&A and, uh, or not last week last episode or two ago uh we did a, a q a and uh people seem to really like that so figure we'd do that again and um yeah so uh how's it going we also have marty uh well just up and down <laughs> i guess um you know it's nice to be building stuff but it's been uh i don't know it's been weird like they lost my hydrogen for like a week and a half nobody knew where the fuck it was and that's annoying. So it, it turned out I bought it, and then there were, you know it comes freight shipping because I'm buying a shitload of it, obviously. And so they had eventually what I found out shipping company. So nobody knew what the fuck I was talking about, and then they had to get involved, and then they were just gonna cancel it, and then I was like, well, shit, now I gotta don't have time to get more media, and so. Uh, but then they called finally, uh, they called back like 20 minutes after they were getting ready to cancel it and um, said they found it and figured out what happened, but it was a different a different freight shipping company um, was the one that was actually doing it and the wrong one got attached to my order. And so they tracked it down. Anyway, that was annoying. Then the, um, I had a bunch of, for you guys that have been uh, watching in the Aquaponic Cannabis Growers group, you know, I've been... Um, building the the flower system and so i got the liner in and uh it looked like it had been damaged in shipping a little bit also so like the first i kind of lost like the first eight feet off the roll because somebody poked a hole in it with something in shipping so you know not that it's 95 or 100 foot roll or something like that so it's not that big a deal but you're like oh eight feet short it's a good thing i have extra and then uh (laughs) And then got the got the whole fish tank lined and got everything into that and uh, it uh, was going okay so far. But it's just been like one thing after another. Oh, and then the the plywood that got delivered in order to line it. So that I built a frame and then I um, put plywood uh, around the, the frame before I put in the PVC liner or the Duris scrim liner or whatever the hell it's called. And uh, and so I, the plywood that showed up had fucking black mold all over it, like one side had been wet and was, it was still wet when it got here. And I didn't realize they delivered it on Thursday and it was really nice weather. So I didn't think anything of it. And I didn't, uh, I didn't look at it right when they delivered it and I saw it later. So then I had to get them to come back out and they were kind of, I mean, they were okay about it. Like they replaced it, but I mean, who wants to fucking put in, plywood that's covered in black mold like 
no one. Yeah, it, that shit shouldn't happen. And they, you know, like even though they replaced it, they were kind of dicks about it. Like they wanted me to come down and get it. I'm like, well, the reason I had you deliver it in the first place is because it doesn't fit very good in my truck. You know, I got a short bed and eight foot sheets of plywood. And uh, I had a bunch of shit to do anyway. So, you know, other than that, it's just like, uh, you know, in addition to trying to build the system and trying to get everything set up for the class. So I had to go pick up the projector and the chairs and the table and uh, get out the projector screen and get it hung up and all that. So it's just been like one thing after another. And I, I haven't been feeling good either. Um, I know you guys talked about that a little bit, but I've had a head cold and been sneezing and coughing. So it's just, uh, it's nice to make progress, but it just feels like everything has an issue. Like, okay, you know, we got to like building the tank was really like a, the frame was about the only thing that didn't, I only fucked up one little part of it that I was all right with. So that wasn't, and it was only my fault. I guess that's the other thing. It's like, it's my fault. That's one thing, but when I'm, you know, it's just shipping or somebody else's random crap and they can't, like, how do you, how do you not know what shipping company you sent something through and, or even be able to figure it out? Like once, like, I think it, it was supposed to be here on the third. So it'll finally get here, uh, tomorrow, 13 days late. And after, you know, after the, by like the fifth, I'm calling him like, Hey, what's going on? Oh, well, we'll look into it. It'll take five to eight business days, which I thought they were just saying that, but no, really it did take that long. So, um, so yeah, it's just been like one thing after another, but it's, uh, um, it's good. I'm really excited for the class. We're gonna, I think we're going to have a good turnout and, uh, it's going to be fun to going through the slide deck and, uh, uh, you know, just being able to put literally everything in, like we talked about um, for this class is, uh, you know, it's a lot more fun as opposed to going through and, you know, trying to deciding what, what needs to go and what doesn't need to go. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, shooting the extended version. Um, it is like the four hour epic Lord of the Rings version of our class. So it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. So just pretty much all just other than being under, under the weather, just prepping for class and trying to get stuff going. Lots of coffee. <laughs> what about you, Steve? Oh, I've been working on all kinds of stuff. Uh, I, I'll, I won't go last this time. Um, I've been cooking up a storm, working on the project in Africa. Um, just getting ready to launch into Zimbabwe, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I'm just trying to figure out what date. Finalizing uh, some stuff on getting some seed into the country, um, getting the paperwork for that together, working on SOPs for some of the stuff, and um, just finding you know all the unfun bullshit paperwork stuff that uh, that no one likes to do, but you have to get done. So that's been going on. And then uh, what happened here? Is everyone else still there? I'm, oh, yeah, I'm still here. I'm still here, but my video, audio, yeah, video oh, went out. There, it's back. it's back. Yeah, I just turned off my camera for a second. I'm trying to install. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, so just working on that and then working on just updating the class. I have an all-new section on viruses in this class, which would be cool to cover. Um, 
got lots of pictures from this year. Um, just adding some more insects and diseases that I've seen this year that, that I haven't seen before. I'll always try to document that in the classes um, and just trying to, you know, fill out some of the stuff that maybe we hadn't, hadn't touched on enough or I thought wasn't flushed out enough in the class um, and, uh, and getting that all ready for this week. And then uh, just recovering from the staph infection and really kicked my ass and, and the speed at which it, it raced down my arm kind of was a little bit scary. So, uh, and then they give you pretty strong antibiotics for it, which are never fun, but don't really have much of an option at the moment. So just dealing with that. And then uh, uh, just working on a couple of other projects, just helping out one or two people in Oklahoma and uh, working with, uh, went out to go see um, uh, the need to grow, which was pretty cool. Corey Booker was there. There was a bunch of other celebrities there. Um, you know, that was kind of neat just to see people that give a shit from the government. Um, you know, not, not, uh, endorsing him or anything, just thought it was nice to actually see someone from the government, uh, you know, educating themselves on, on any level of the regenerative movement, which was cool. Um, and then, yeah, um, yeah. And then just tearing through California, um, you know, popping by, seeing a bunch of old friends, seeing the guys from Spectrum King, seeing, uh, um, you know, a bunch of the homies down in, in L.A. and then a bunch of people up in uh, San Francisco area. So, and uh, yeah, Just doing the thing and uh, getting the business stuff done and then trying not to die, basically. <laughs> yeah, staff infections are no joke. So I'm, I'm glad you feel like you're going to be okay. Cause that could be, that could be, yeah. Bam. Oh yeah. No, I just taking my internals and then putting mullen oil on it every three hours. And, uh, you know, it seems to be working real well. So just need to, to keep up with the meds. That was from a bug. A pet. Didn't you say you got bit? I saw something. Online. I don't know. See, it looks, that's what the doctor thought it was, but you know, my, my father had a theory, maybe it came from an airport tray and, uh, ah. you know, that's entirely possible too. So who knows? But it looks like an insect bite in two in two separate places. So on my knuckle and on my palm. So, but it's pretty crazy. And then uh, other than that, just working with um, a couple of people on trying to secure some genetics and um, you know just securing some of the different things like security contracts and just some of the other things you have to do when you're you're getting this kind of stuff going. And uh, yeah, other than that, just getting some some cool guests uh, lined up. We're going to have some cool lawyers come on the show and talk to us about what they do. And uh, it's a really cool presentation by the guy from California, Micro Turbine, about, you know, using turbines to, for your cannabis operations, a bunch of other cool stuff. So it was interesting, uh, interesting week last week. What, uh, what about you, Mr. Green Jeans? Hey. Um, wow, yeah, well, I had a great time hanging out with you last week. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. we got to go out to dinner. Fun. We got to yeah. hot box, hot box the, <laughs> the van. <laughs> yep. Nice. That was fun. And uh, oh, and uh, the 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 hot tip of the month or the year possibly was you telling me to get those persimilis persimilis mites predators for my for my spider mite. 
I had gotten complacent with them. You know, I figured, I figured, oh, I keep them pretty well beat down with the regular water dips. And, you know, when I'm doing that, I, it's fun to visit with the plants and do other things with them and things like that. I'm noticing now that the, the mites, uh, now that I'm not doing any water dips anymore, I mean, they just wiped, they wiped, I don't even know. I could have had two different kinds of spider mites too. I am not, I don't even know. I mean, it's been so long since I got in there with the, with the microscope and took a look. But I did try to, I did take some uh, videos when they first came of the predators uh, because the first batch they sent me, about half of them were dead and the company was really nice and they re-upped and sent me another uh, batch and the second batch was, was much better. And I took like, and I got in there with my phone and the little 60, uh, 60X uh, thing that, you know, to, um, uh, you know, to microscope attachment on the, on the photograph and took a couple movies of them, you know, to, to, cause I had done that before to show those guys that, you know, to show them that half of them were dead. But when the, the new ones, boy, they're 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 like they're fast, and you could barely you know barely follow them with the video. You can't you know you have to. <laughs> they're like running along the rim of the of the little jar that they're coming out, and they're just like speeding along there. So I can you can imagine they must just run up on the mites and it's like like wolves or something like that. <laughs> they move you know. Ten times the speed of a regular mite. Anyway, that was a great tip, Steve. Thank you very much. And anybody else, if you're if you're having problems with spider mites, boy, predators are absolutely the way to go. I knew this. I'd done it, you know, a couple times before. Last time was maybe 20 years ago. There were more. Well, when you when you find the one that fits really well in your environment, I feel like exactly, exactly, for sure. That's exactly it. And apparently they, they must be happy because, and I'm sure they haven't wiped them completely. I mean, I literally cannot see any damage at all, but, um, but they must be still there. Otherwise, what would the persimilis guys be eating, right? So they must, be, they must be striking a balance. But that balance is, as far as I can tell, the mites are just beat down. <laughs> if they're, oh, you know, yeah. they're there at all, <laughs> they're beat down. It does take a while, but eventually they can eliminate them. Like especially if their if their population doesn't drop off too much from from starving, because as they eat their food, it disappears, right? So, exactly. Um, so it just kind of depends on where it falls in that population thing, like how many, and um, and how how thoroughly they are covered throughout your like if you have a canopy or multiple plants or whatever. Yes. You know, if you've got a really thick canopy, sometimes it can be really difficult because you'll have little hidden spots um, uh, all over the place that, um, you know, that they got to they got to get into yeah. um, in order to eat them. So it kind of depends when you have a large population that they're eating at first and they're, you know, they don't move around so much. They, they don't need food. They got food exactly. right there. And then as food declines, they'll move around a little more. But if they can't reach new new food by the time they die off, then they start reproducing or stop reproducing and it uh it can become yeah. difficult so the the little um pouches that come with uh they come with food inside of them can help yeah. extend out and that's kind of what they're for is give that breeding pouch a, a place where they're um it's the right humidity most of the time they try to keep those uh um little packets with both food in a decent uh environment environment for them to 
reproduce in, and then you can have them. I think they say, what is it, up to six weeks, Steve, on most of them? So it depends on the species, but yes, up yeah. to six weeks, I think, with the Swarski eye. Um, and, and there's actually, a, I believe it's a potato mite or a wheat mite or something like that. It, it's a wheat mold mite or something like that. <laughs> it's, a, it's potato, potato <laughs> mite usually. So, and then they have um, usually crumbs of like cornmeal or something like that, that, uh, um, that they put in there. So the, the, the potato mite can have food and then the, um, the predator can continue feeding on something to eat. Yeah, on the on the mites that won't affect your crop, I guess yeah. is the easiest way to put it. Unless you're growing potatoes, I guess maybe that'll be an issue. I think the last time I got uh, predator mites, they were California Californicus or whatever. Um, yeah, so it's real. It's real dependent when you're treating spider mites. It's important that you know what your temperature range is. Yes. Um, you know, if you're say in Oklahoma. You're going to want to use Californicus because it gets so damn hot and it's so mm -hmm. damn humid. You know, that's really what's going to what's going to survive and do a lot better in your grow uh, long term. Whereas if you're in a cooler climate, you know, the persimilis is going to be much better, um, you know, but they don't like much above about 80, 84, 85. Um, they also like a little bit higher humidity. Um, and, and, you know, whereas, uh, you know, if you're a little bit, you know, kind of in between, um, you know, you might want to go for a Swarovski eye, or if you think you might have some smaller mites as well, go for a Swarovski eye, um, you know, so it just depends on, or even a, 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 fascia, a, a phallus, F-A-L-L-A-C-I-S. Um, yeah. I know, even those guys too, uh, imbecilis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so the, on the Swarovski's, the temperature range, suggested temperature range is 77 to 85, but they'll remain active down to 60. And the humidity, ideal humidity is around 70%. So those are the two key factors, temperature and humidity. And then obviously, you know, whether or not they have food or whatever yeah. to continue. Yeah, yep. they're amazingly if effective. You, if they have, if you have a, rate, a period of time during the day where you know, twice a day where the, the <clears throat> humidity gets higher, you know, say because of dew or whatever else, that that's really what the, they need to survive. It's they dry out, um, you know, so even if you're not meeting those humidity requirements, if you're getting, you know, a short bath, bath or or some other spike in humidity over the course uh -huh. of the day, it'll also rehydrate that can definitely, you know, twice a day that can, you know, mitigate some of that. Oh, that's good. And yeah. so the per persimilis, is that how you say it, Steve? Yeah, I, that, I don't know. That's what I was, <laughs> Close enough. Similis, yeah. It has a much wider temperature range. It's from 68 to 90 degrees in uh -huh. a wider range of relative humidity on 60 to 90%. So it probably moving to that, you know, your, your Mr. Green Jeans' growing environment is probably, um, you know, a little bit outside of the, of the target for the other one. And so, and sometimes changing during the times of year. So like for instance, in the summertime, my growing room usually has, uh, you know, a little bit different temperature swing and slightly higher, higher humidity, I think. I'd have to think about that for a minute, but um, so it, it just tends to be a little bit higher. Obviously I'm trying to control it and keep an eye on my BPD and all that, but 
you're, depending on the time of year, if your temperature changes very much, and especially outdoors, your temperature is going to change um, even in a greenhouse, then obviously uh, adjusting uh, in the time of year for that as well. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think the first time I got predator mites was probably in the early 80s. And there was like maybe one source to get them or, you know, there was, <laughs> and now there's many. And I think the prices, uh, prices are lower. And uh, I think I got more mites for less money too. I mean, I think, or either that was, or it was double the amount, but, you know, there was supposed to be a thousand count. I think last time or the first time I got them in, that would have been like late 70s, I think, early 80s. I've, uh, I've really been digging hoverflies lately for uh, fungus gnat treatments. Hmm. They really kick ass in aquaponics. Really? Plus, they're entertaining to watch, too. Huh. Are those, you see them, out in the, right? You see them in the wild, kind of. They're the, the ones that, that have an amazing uh, ability to hover. Is that why they're called hoverflies? They're like, they're like little, they look almost like a sweat bee. Yeah, like a sweat bee, exactly. Yeah. But they, but they get a flying differently, right? They're flying yep. more. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But those, those predator mites really are the best solution for your. Oh, uh, no, mites, no question about it. No question. I had forgotten how effective they were. I'd gotten complacent. I was like, I don't really mind. You know, I don't really mind the water tips. I wasn't, and I was doing other maintenance and playing around with the plants, doing, you know, combining it all together into, it's funny now because they're, you know, like I'm, I am to reach in there to pull out all the leaves, you know, drying lower leaves or dead, lower leaves that are dying off or something like that. That's it. Instead of just being there to, to trim the bottom, lollipop the bottoms of the plants and stuff like that. I have to look at them and say, hmm, maybe I should, <laughs> pull that plant out and prune it <laughs> so don't need any attention now that's ah, just great anyway thanks so much well, steve yeah. it was a great tip we forgot, we forgot to mention you mentioned it a little bit earlier but <clears throat> marty and i are teaching a class thursday through sunday <clears throat> if you're interested um you can find out more information at apmjclass.com and uh it's a four-day commercial aquaponic cannabis class we cover Everything from design, microbes, probiotics, um, insects, beneficial insects, um, you know, licensing. fish foods. What's that? Licensing. Licensing. Yeah, yeah we go a lot Business about concerns. trials and tribulations on that stuff. Um, and we have a whole section on business and, uh, you know, try, try to really help you wrap your head around all the different stuff that that's involved. Obviously, we can't go through everything, but we try to give you a real good foundation on what you're going to need to get started, or at least, you know, you'll know what, what you need to hire as far as people to, to do X, Y, and Z, uh, and how, you know, roughly how much you'll need in staff and all that stuff. So, Beneficial insects, which is like we just got done talking about. So all that, all that stuff we covered just now, we'll talk about, um, you know, even other insects besides those, like Actually, I was going to ask uh, Steve about one that I was reading about um, because I took some pictures of it in my front yard. I didn't know what it was and looked it up. Have you ever heard of a bee-like tachnid fly? You know what that is, Steve? That's a new one for me. So, and it's interesting too. It's like, it's basically a fly that looks like a bee. <laughs> That's a, the easiest way to describe it. 
and there's a there's a number of different variations of them, but the particularly the bee-like tactin fly is interesting because um, uh, of how it lays its eggs inside caterpillars. So essentially, it will either, depending on the species of tachinid fly, it will either um, inject the egg directly inside of the caterpillar, or it will lay eggs around a caterpillar that is feeding in hope that it becomes ingested by it. Then the egg hatches inside the caterpillar and eats it from the inside out. Wow, that's excellent. <laughs> that's trippy. So I was blown away, first of all, because I had, I had no idea what to wear. Here, I'll have to get a picture up and find one. Because that's what I was doing. I was taking pictures in my front yard. And so um, at first I thought it was bees that were coming into these you know, late fall flowers uh, to, um, I assume, to pollinate. But after seeing it, obviously it was not a bee. Um, it's, I'm only assuming it's coming in to get a drink. So here I got some good shots of them here. Let's see if I can do this. All right, can you guys see that? Should be loading, hopefully. No? Yeah, we can see it. Okay, good. <laughs> Y'all went quiet on me. So that's what it looks like. Is it, it basically is a fly that's imitating a bee, and uh, so that's when I how basically I just took this picture and then I started looking around online to try and figure out what it was. And if you go look it up, that's that's what you find. And just reading about it, um, so I mean, I, I guess that explains why I, I haven't seen any caterpillars around here since I moved here. Um, and we have you know we have a number of, of uh, plants in the front yard that they would love to munch on. Um, so I was a little curious on, as to why they weren't there, but these things are everywhere. So <laughs> maybe, maybe that's an indication. So I'm not sure, obviously, if these guys are everywhere, that means they have a pretty high population, which means there are caterpillars around for it to lay eggs in. So, um, I'm not sure exactly how that balance is struck, but right now they're nowhere around my yard or my plans. So that's, that's a good sign. But yeah, I thought that was uh, really interesting, so I wanted to share that with you guys. In, in reading about them, did you find that there's any kind of particular region or kind of environment they like to live in or are um, indigenous to? No, I did not look at that. I did, um, once I found the information on caterpillars, I kind of, kind of just focused on that because obviously that's that. And I don't think that's any anything that you could particularly buy. I mean, I guess I, I didn't look, but I wouldn't think that's an insect that you could go out and buy, but it brings up an important topic because uh, a lot of times you're going to have more success fostering the predators that already live in your area, similar to kind of what we do with microbes when we're doing like a IMO and stuff like that. The microbes that live in that area have evolved in that area and are going to do well because they are already there. And it's kind of the same for predators. So if you live in an area like I do, and obviously now I know that I have these tachin flies around, um, you know, making sure that I take care of those flowers that they're coming in to drink water off of and, and you know, drinking the dew off of, or e even just, uh, you know, maybe using a sprayer to water them so they're, they're wet every morning. Um, so yeah, I think that the, there are other ways to encourage the, um, 
the good guys more than the bad guys and, and really kind of outcompete them on, a, on an insect level in the same way that we do or we think about on a microbe level. So you mentioned that they, uh, you want to make sure you keep the, the flowers or plants that they're living on or, or you know, uh, surviving on. Is there any particular plant? What, like, what was that plant you showed us in that picture? What was that? Uh, what is this called? Um, Just wondered if you had plants like that, if that would draw them at all. Yeah, you know, I would, I would think so. And they, they definitely seem to flock to any of the ones that are holding water. Like, you know, obviously it looks like it's here getting pollen, just like a bee would be. But when you take a closer look, it, it's drinking, there's little water droplets all over this flower. And that's, that's essentially what it's coming in for. Um, and all those little pockets, they get all built up, whether it's dew or um, these ones actually get hit by, by a sprayer that I have close by. It's just like a mister. Um, and so that's, uh, that's part of the reason these are wet every morning and they have a place to come in and drink. So I would think even, a you know, an insect friendly type bath would be, uh, would be something that you could do as well to get them to come in any flower that's going to hold a little bit of water. And I'll have to see what the name of this is. The, the lady that, uh, planted all these, she put it somewhere on here, but I can't find it just yet. So when I, when I come across it, I'll let you know, but I think any, anything that's going to allow them to, to hold water, and, uh, and really, it probably requires more research. I'm sure that, um, you know, I can look up more and learn more about it, like you're talking about what, uh, you know, what does it like? And are there other plants that I could plant that would be better? Um, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. Well, thanks. And I'll look forward to that information. <laughs> Maybe somebody in chat knows. You may know what these flowers are. Let me know. Wait, put the picture back up. Uh, there you go. Anybody? Almost looks like clover. No, it's like the like red clover or something like that, isn't it? I don't think Most it's clover. In the onion family. Yeah, that was, that's what I was going to say first, actually, onion. Something like the top of an onion. Every time I post pictures on my Facebook account, uh, the, the lady that we bought this place from is always posting what all the flowers are called. So as soon as I get done scrolling to it, I will let you know what she said. But yeah, I do think that um, either way, whatever whatever insect it is that you're you are trying to uh encourage its growth is just you know research about it what is it like try to make sure to keep those things around um and so in a um you know de depending on your environment that could mean a lot of different things um, yeah some people that they actually uh, i was looking at they some of them go after um uh, uh, monarch caterpillars and there's a lot of people who are trying to you know promote their you know are growing kinds of milkweeds and things like that and trying to promote the monarch butterflies and I'm not sure about whether it's this same species because there's a couple apparently a couple other of these bee-like tachnid flies that's <laughs> so cool huh <laughs> yeah it's pretty neat yeah but but um I 
yeah, yeah, very neat. Cool. Yeah, and it was just going to say that, uh, yeah, some of them, I guess, go after the, uh, so they call, so the monarch people call it the dreaded, the dreaded be like technic fly. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so for them, you know what I mean? Because I was like trying to put yeah. my monarch butterfly. So that's exactly what you, what you were just saying is that depending on what you're, what you, what you need, what you're trying to get in your garden. Yeah, what do you, what, what is your perspective? Obviously, if yeah. you're trying to protect caterpillars, then you don't, you don't <laughs> want to keep these guys around. Um, yeah. You know, but if you're, if you're growing anything, <laughs> then yeah. usually people are not, uh, not too welcoming with caterpillars anyway, so. Yeah, no, caterpillars are a humongous problem with cannabis. I know they are up north too, we, and down south as well. They're green ones that you can't see. The only way you can really spot them is, lying down underneath the plant for five or 10 minutes, which is fun anyway. And just kind of looking up into the leaves and, you know, eventually you'll, you'll, you'll see them, but they're like amazingly hard to even see. So I'm sure these, these guys, these, uh, these tachnid flies are much better <laughs> at finding the, <laughs> finding their food than we are at seeing them. Cause yeah, a lot of times on cannabis, that's why I'm always telling people around you know, August, September, down down south here. And I think up north too, you know, you're gonna get, probably gonna get a wave of, of caterpillars. And well, this is kind of cool because Ryan was telling me the other day, he was out there suddenly had been uh, swarmed by caterpillars out there on the hemp plants. Yeah. They, I'm they, sitting they, here picking all caterpillars. So we've been doing some research about what we should do about that. I'm gonna have to see what yeah, else. They get, so so the best thing hands down aureus and then assassin bugs and rove beetles because they rove from plant to plant and you want to all of them can prey on them until they get a decent size uh, after that then you're pretty much stuck with assassin bugs and mantises and aureus as far as things that can take them down cool i hope i hope i hope ryan's listening <laughs> Anyway, yeah, we'll cover we'll cover all the different pests that you're going to run into any kind of common basis. Marty and I have both also done a lot of um, consulting on hemp farms as well the last two years, and uh, really gotten to know a lot of different um, of the other issues you run into in, in which insects really kind of take off when you do large scale outdoor and large scale greenhouse. Um, you know, it's a little bit different. Uh, you're starting to see septoria and some some new viruses uh from crop you know insects biting one plant than the other and you know, just some some new stuff that uh really you know wasn't it's not in the, in the books that you find on the shelf at, at, at the bookstore for sure so apparently it's called sedum i guess or s-e-d-u-m yeah that's well that's a big family uh sedum they're like succulent plants but and, and now that you mention it, it does look like the flower of some kind of sedum yeah that's that's well that's what she said it is and she planted yeah. it so i'm going yeah, yeah. I'm going with her <laughs> yeah yeah um so yeah that that's what it's called and she's really big on succulents so that that doesn't surprise me i'm seeing some other ones in that same family here i guess the stone crop yeah exactly stone i was just going to say stone crop is one of the common uh, ones stone plants really good plant uh uh, to grow in your garden. It's a good last resort plant or like survival plant. Also has some medicinal properties. I don't remember the exact medicinal properties, but I know it has some. 
Yeah, that's right. Cool. It grows natively. Yeah, that's, what, that's what it's called, and uh, it definitely does a good job of holding holding water for for all types of insects. And I see a number of plants on there all the time, and again, especially late later in fall, like right now, um, or even the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, it's been pretty heavy caterpillar season. So, you know, you're going to want want something to draw them into that area. So if you have you know, some of the, the later fall flowers still available where other ones are dying off, uh, you're going to be, you know, more of an advantage at, at bringing them into your area. So that's what I would suggest. Very cool. Does anyone from chat have any um, insect questions, uh, especially around beneficial insects? Um, the other thing uh, here, I'll read off some of the, so the details here since I have the official press release today. Uh, this is what I've been waiting for to actually tell you guys. Because So uh, we're launching the 750 acres in Zimbabwe. Um, we also have 100, um, 100 acres set aside for processing site as well. So that's pretty cool. Um, that's awesome, man. Congratulations. I mean, I've known and I've already said congratulations, but officially and publicly, congratulations. Yeah. And then we have some other, we'll be expanding into South Africa and Malawi uh, in short order. We're just finalizing our stuff there. We'll have one of the first three licenses in Malawi as well. Uh, and then um, in South Africa, we already have our permit. We're just waiting on our license. Um, permits let you get going, license lets you distribute uh, internationally, so we're just waiting on our final paperwork there, but everything is, uh, all systems go, so it's a lot of fun uh, getting this all going and, uh, you know, really making a big difference over there, uh, doing the nurseries and aquaponics, uh, you know, helping get food to people that need protein, and uh, at the same time, helping get revenue over there. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to have a way to help pay the farmers a much better price than they would normally get paid. Um, that, and most of the other opportunities they'll have in the cannabis industry there. And, uh, um, you know, distribute a lot of stuff into, into Europe because they don't have enough land. So it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, certainly one of the bigger operations I've worked with in a long time. So, or ever for that matter. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Uh, but anyways, that's what I'll be up to. And, uh, there will be some changes to the show. Like I said before, I think we're going to move to a live only on, um, on, on Tuesday or Thursday. I haven't decided which. Hey, the kitty says hi too. Um, we're going to move to a live show one day a week and a recorded show uh, one day a week with uh, you know more special guests and um, you know maybe a little bit more interview focused, uh, more akin to Shango. Uh, shout out to Shango, by the way. Uh, a couple of days ago, I uh, had my interview posted with him. I did an interview with him. It's about an hour and a half long, um, you know, about half an hour longer than his normal interviews, just like our show. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, definitely check that out and support Shango. And uh, a really great interview. It was a lot of fun with him. We, we actually ended up recording for like three or four hours, even though the episode is only like an hour and 20 some minutes. Uh, we just, we kept getting off topic and going on to, to, you know, aquarium stuff or just personal interests. And he's such a cool dude. So, um, you know, much love to him and, and that um, interview. And um, 
yeah, working on some other cool stuff I can't talk about, but we'll have some cool video content of. Uh, I'm just not allowed to talk about until we post it. And uh, yeah, just, just working on all kinds of cool stuff right now and uh, busy as a bee. Sure. Uh, what about you? Uh, what about you, Roger? How you been? What have you been doing? Yeah, Got to get unmuted here. <clears throat> um, I'm doing okay. We're working. I'm going to be uh, handing over my paperwork for my hemp license tomorrow to my partner, who's going to turn it over to our investor, and uh, who's got the license, by the way. And we're going to be cleaning up. I'm really excited because we're going to start the cleanup and rejuvenation of my greenhouse operation. So um, it's more about getting started than how long it'll take because usually it looks like a freaking mess. But once we get started, we're liable to knock out most of the cleanup tomorrow. If it does, of course, now that we finally got it scheduled to work on Wednesdays until we get it up and online again, um, that's the, he's so busy. That's the only day he can make it over. Um, uh, oh shoot! I don't, I don't know what I lost train of thought. Um, it won't tow. Yeah, it, it just won't take. It doesn't take that long once you get going. It, it just looks like a mess. And then once you start digging through it, all you got to do is get that one clear spot. I, mine's my. I hate to say it, but mine's overgrown with. And I let it do this for a specific reason because we. We like them, but it's overgrown with blackberries and stuff like that. And so I'm going to be cleaning out a lot of blackberries out of there tomorrow and uh, setting them around the perimeter of the land. And I hope, hopefully they'll uh, take hold because they, you can't seem to stop them. Well, I don't try to stop them from growing, but they grow everywhere around here. They're like crazy. And I'm lucky to have blackberries and dandelions. dandelions. So, yeah, I'm just that's about it for me. Uh, uh, we're getting cool finally the temperatures have dropped to where we're uh well we're still they keep saying we're going into the 70s and then it's 80 but next week we're supposed to drop into like the low to mid 60s all day long so that's going to be kind of nice for a break from this crazy crazy year of heat we had went from fall to summer basically last fall we never had a winter really and then we went straight like it was like fall all the way till June and then it got hotter than a blue blaze as a hell. So, um, yeah, that's all we're doing over here. We're just trying to get this, uh, thing going with the hemp. We've had a little, um, breakdown at the big farm because of the water quality. So that may be a dead issue, but the owner has several pieces of land. So he's looking in there doing some water testing to see if we can find a more viable piece of land to do the outdoor, the big outdoor operation. So I'm kind of happy though, that it shifts the uh, attention to my greenhouse op. And then we're going to have to finish building um, Ryan's indoor uh, custom grow room. So I, that's going to be fun too, because uh, for all the years I've been growing, even though I've got a pretty nice little small setup, you know, and it's climate controlled. It's nothing like what we're going to do here where we're building it from scratch. It's going to be real nice. Can't wait. That's about it for me. All right. Very cool. Um, so I thought we'd cover some of the basic stuff with aquaponic cannabis, um, particularly for small scale home stuff. Um, First off, does anybody have any questions in chat um, before we uh, 
get into that. And then, um, uh, Marty, did you have anything else that you wanted to? Where is everybody? Hello. Can you hear me? Can I can hear you, but I lost the uh, the video again. But I could hear you, so I didn't really care if I could okay. see you or not. You know, because you're well, just a black screen anyway. All right, so um, Marty, I also know that you. Uh, so we we started this off. Uh, I don't even remember what we talked about in the first episode. It's been so damn long. But um, what uh, what are some of the key fundamental things that you've noticed doing aquaponic cannabis and maybe um, getting started? that were maybe stood out to you or that you've learned along the way? Oh, so, sorry, but I noticed in chat, Marty, in our private chat, Marty said he'd be right back. So I don't know if you saw that. Ah, that thing is. <laughs> I remember that one thing I was impressed by, it was within 15 minutes, you guys were talking about the dual root zone. That's what you basically... You did an intro for about 15 minutes within 15, 20 minutes. Cause I tell people about going back and watching the first two 15 episodes, but the first episode, you guys get right into it in about 15 or 20 minutes. And you go into the, what the dual root zone is all about. That's what the first episode was about. Yep. And, and the dual root zone really is the key to growing any kind of more advanced plant in aquaponics. It gives you that level of control that you simply don't get with other grow methods. It also gives you a huge boost to terpene production against anyone who doesn't. I know there's one or two people out there in the aquaponic cannabis community who say, oh, you don't need it. Well, you know, I've never seen any of their terpene and cannabinoid profiles come to within even 5% of ours. Um, you know, it, it's such a night and day difference. You know, it, it, again, it's not even comparable. This was further reinforced with a, a great presentation by a gentleman at the um, the uh, Aquaponics Association's conference this year who had a, from, uh, did a bunch of side-by-side -side work that published a lot of the stuff that I have uh, been NDA'd under uh, from uh, over at Green Relief and some of the other people I've worked with um, on, on direct comparisons using data that he was allowed to share. So that was really cool and uh, really nice to see, um, uh, you know, that probably more in the public realm. So, um, yeah, so that so that's really, uh, I guess, uh, one of the biggest points. It allows you to have your terrestrial microbes. You have your, you know, um, mycorrhizal fungi. You have your rotifers, your, you know, terrestrial arthropods, all your different terrestrial microbes, terrestrial bacteria in the upper half of the root zone. Then you have a layer of burlap in the middle of your pot and the bottom half with either lava rock or hydrogen. This allows the space for your aquatic microbes and you know all your um, you know aquatic creatures. This allows you to have two completely different biomes in the plant's uh, root system, which allows the plant to you know, have a much wider biodiversity of microbes to pick and choose mineralization from, you know, via its root system. And this also st stimulates the immune system in ways of the plant um, that that are otherwise not stimulated. So, for instance, you have. Um, you know, fungi and bacteria that it's not normally exposed to. Well, what's the plant going to do when that happens? It's going to produce terpenes and other secondary metabolites uh, and compounds in order to fend off, you know, similar type compounds. Well, those are, that's, that's what we're after in cannabis, right? We want more terpenes, more flavonoids, more cannabinoids, and all these defense mechanism essential oils. 
So by increasing the biodiversity or, you know, in, in, in our case, straight up chain, you know, increasing the number of, of root biomes entirely, uh, this gives you a much better, you know, example of uh, a much better way to, you know, vaccinate that plant and, and stimulate that plant to produce much more compounds and really boost that, that terpene and cannabinoid production. And you simply can't do that in a DWC bed. You can't do that in a media bed. You'll never achieve the, the terpene and cannabinoid levels that we get with that level of control. You know, you can do all of that living soil stuff that Dr. Elaine Ingham teaches and Chris Trump teaches and, and Dragonfly Earth teaches. You can do all of that in your soil layer and still do all the wonderful, you know, um, you know, microbial work that we talk about uh, in the aquatic layer at the same time and really stimulate that plant to, to really produce the maximum possible amount of, of terpenes and cannabinoids. And then honestly, in my opinion, is the way to get the maximum potential out of the genetics of that plant. You know, I, I can't think of any other way to, to stimulate that plant's immune system any more than the way that we do. And not only that, but do it in a way that gives us control. I think that's what sold me on getting on board and working and trying to convert to the dual root zone was because it was the first time I saw something that made sense to me. And I feel like it is common sense that having that soil layer where you can add amendments, you just cannot add to the fish tank, you know, or have it flow through was, was the big selling point to me, which is basically what you just said in a way, you know. A uh, guy in the chat, Kevin Kale uh, in uh, YouTube chat wants to know, uh, can you use catfish and do you keep the fish till they die? Um, you, you can use catfish. Uh, catfish tend to be a little bit more sensitive to uh, nutrients in the water because they are a scaleless fish. They're also more sensitive if you end up having to medicate them in a hospital system or, or if they get sick, they will absorb medications a little bit more readily. So you have to lower the dosing uh, when you actually end up um, dosing those fish for, with medication. So you absolutely can run them with catfish. I would say they're not the ideal, um, but I do enjoy and, and, and I honestly recommend putting in one to five catfish in every system just to keep the system clean and, you know they end up at the bottom of the fish tank they're you know even if you have you know midwater fish them being in the bottom of the fish tank just kicks the fish waste up off the bottom any uneaten food just just kicks it up just enough so that it ends up in the filter and, and is properly handled so that's why i like to have just a couple of bottom feeders you know catfish or otherwise uh, you know just to, to maintain an overall system cleanliness in, in any of my fish tanks Again, just make sure they're appropriately sized to start eating everything. Right. So the part of that question was about keeping them till they die. And pretty much that idea is that they're going to oh, get so too big at some point and you either need to eat them or, or do something with them and have smaller fish, replace them with smaller fish. Yeah. So most of the time we're rotating fish out between one and three years, depending on what it is that we're doing. Um, most of them are one, one to two year turnovers with the exception being maybe sturgeon or a few other fish. Um, we had another question in chat. It says, do you know anything about the microbes used within the product Mammoth P? Is this phosphorus fixating microbe relevant to you aquaponic guys in any way? Um, yes, actually, Mammoth P is a, one second, I'll get the cat out of it. Oh, An excellent thing, but um, Steve's going to tell you about it when he deals with his cat there. Yeah. We love Mammoth P. Yes, we oh, love no. Mammoth P. In fact, Colin Bell was on the show 
um, not that long ago. Uh, <laughs> Colin Bell was on the show just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I just saw him. I, I talked to him last week, actually. Um, so uh, in person. So, um, uh, you know, he's a great guy. And Mammoth P, honestly, is one of the best products I've seen for aquaponics in general. Um, we did a bunch of testing with it back in the aquaponics source back before Mammoth P was even a product. I think this was even before Grosserta was even registered as a company. Um, way back when uh, he was just a student at um, CU, if memory serves me correctly. And, you know, I'm dating myself now. Um, but uh, uh, <laughs> um, we actually found that it was one of the largest nutrient increasers of any microbial product we ever tested at the aquaponics source and it made a huge difference in the bioavailability of, of phosphorus in particular. Um, it had anywhere increased any uh, anywhere between 30 and 50% the bioavailability of phosphorus and is a great safe uh, microbial that you can put into any aquaponic system, be it lettuce or, uh, or cannabis. Uh, it really is a good one. In particular, I really like it to put it into mineralization tanks. So rather than putting it, you know, just do dosing, you know, thousands of gallons or hundreds of gallons, put it in your mineralization system. You know, you're going to have uh, an offline mineralization tank where you're going to brew up your fish waste, put it in there and let it unlock that fish waste and let it unlock the phosphorus where the fish waste actually is. And then mineralize that and put that back in the system afterwards. And that's really going to give you the, the best bang for your buck with the Mammoth P and the best application in aquaponics. Marty, are you back yet? I guess Marty's still playing uh, Kid Agro. Uh, what are some of the, the things that you've learned, uh, Mr. Green Jeans, uh, along the way with the aquaponics? Yeah, you know, um, the, uh, what the, the, my only experience, I mean, I've, been, I've, been, I've always been an avid fish keeper. You know, I love fish. I, was, I used to belong to the uh, International Beta Congress breeding those things and man i was into guppies and live bears and stuff when i was a little kid so i've always loved you know fish and stuff and i think the the, the first my my first experience of with it was running a dwc uh bucket um i think this was i want to say sometime in the early 2000s maybe and i was curious to see uh uh you know to try it try DW, dwc but I didn't really want to, and I didn't even know what kind of, um, you know, uh, Kool-Aid nutrients and stuff to use. So, uh, but I, at the same time, I had a giant uh, fish tank full of, of goldfish, like a bunch of big, fancy goldfish, which, you know, you know, eat a lot of food and poop a lot. So the water, uh, all I did, I just, I just ran the entire, uh, I, I grew a plant all the way from uh, beginning to harvest, just uh, changing out my goldfish water into the into the TWC setup, and it worked. It worked brilliantly. I mean, it worked really amazing. I had probably some of the usual problems with DWC that uh, you know it's when the roots get super filling with a big five gallon bucket, fill up the thing. It's harder to get a lot of oxygen to the roots. Obviously, higher temperatures are not good, um, things like that. But uh, I was able to understand all that stuff, anyways, because I've already, you know, done a bunch of fish uh, 
you know, a lot of fish tanks and everything like that. So, <laughs> but yeah, that, I, you know, so ever since then, I mean, and I was surprised that people weren't doing it was, it was years later that I probably saw the first little aquaponic set up at a cannabis convention, you know, going to a, I mean, at a, uh, um, you know, a vendors uh, show and, you know, it's a long time later that I first saw. So actually, you know, aquaponics is, I mean, for me, it's, you know, relatively new thing. Although, of course, my, my grandmother, you know, organic gardener, she was always trying to get my fish water when, because I had, you know, tons of fish tanks and everything. She was always getting the fish water and putting it on her favorite plants and everything, you know. So I, I think the, the idea of, of aquaponics has been around a long time. It's people haven't really fleshed it out like you guys have been, are doing, you know, until really the last 20 years, I guess you'd have to say. It's as recent, and maybe that's a little generous, maybe more like only 15 years. But uh, yeah, man, uh, I, I would really love to, if I was going to do uh, kind of a commercial thing and, uh, you know, anywhere of, of where I was, uh, a greenhouse type thing, I would definitely, I would use uh, uh, aquaponics because it's basically to me, it looks like it's kind of like it's similar, you know, it's another water growing method. I mean, you can't say hydroponics, but it's hydro growing type of a system, but it's got the advantage of being organic. And the problem, you know, with those things is that the idea that you can control every a bit of your environment and you know feed the plant exactly what it needs and this and that it's not really that's kind of a pipe dream you know it's not really possible it's, it's really much more complex system than that and you know any any organic gardening methods the reason why you know we, we say the science of organic gardening as opposed to the to the religion of organic gardening and the science of organic gardening is actually probably extremely complex. I mean, we, we try to learn a lot of it, obviously, but since it is, uh, you know, an organic system, there's a bunch of it that's sort of beyond our understanding. We just go, well, those friendly bugs and those guys, those microbes in there, they're, they're helping out, you know, they're doing, I mean, that's, so that, that's basically, that's what, you know, I, that's what I think aquaponics is. It's basically organic water culture, you know, it's a, which means less work, you know, the trans, translation of organic, less work, um, you know, easier to manage, uh, more, basically you should be getting uh, definitely higher quality and possibly bigger yield for whatever it is you're growing. And, uh, yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> that's that's my experience with with aquaponics. Certainly not, not as extensive as you guys, but, but well, you didn't you used to tell it when you first started coming on the show, didn't you tell us how you had a nice pond and some really nice aquaculture and used to water yeah. your plants with just the pond water? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that was cool. I was talking more about a, um, actually about just a big uh, biofilter. And I was throwing a lot of stuff in there and it was way too dirty for fish. 
this is when I, after I took the fish out of it, and then I just filled up the, um, I put in a whole lot more gravel until it was, till the water was only two or three inches uh, deep at the top. And the thing was, you know, the entire tub was filled with, with gravel. So it's one big, one big uh, biofilter. And then I just started throwing stuff into it. I started throwing, uh, you know, chicken manure and compost and things into it just to see if the biofilter could, once it was established, to see if it could eat, eat those things. And it, and it could, it did. And uh, the result was very, very strong, uh, you know, ultra potent <laughs> compost water, compost tea, which I assume you know, in the beginning, when you first throw something like uh, chicken manure in there, oh my God, you have a, a basically an ammonia bloom, but you really won't get that if you have a well-established uh, you know, biofilter. So, and then that all that ammonia gets, that's what gets, uh, you know, eaten up and turned into nitrates and nitrites, which are obviously plant, you know, food. And uh, so, yeah, you, you can make this kind of concentrated plant food that with a, a backyard biofilter like that. But the thing, the thing was the thing that, that I really, and I want to get back into experimenting with that more, but I still have a bunch of it that I, that I made that I haven't finished using up yet is uh, charcoal. Well, I was putting, I was taking hardwood charcoal and putting it into the, uh, into the pond basically and waiting for it to, to sink and then taking it out and, and crushing it up and putting it in the plant mix. So it's kind of activating it <laughs> or deactivating it, uh, as it were. I was, I was wondering like what, it, what, what activated charcoal, right? So what do you, what do you, when you, so, I'm assuming that it was taking, absorbing more than just the water is probably absorbing certain things out of the water, like the nitrates and the nitrites and other organic compounds and things like that, while getting sucked into the, into the uh, charcoal. And so, yeah, so that's like sort of activated uh, biochar, basically, you're, you're, you're making activated biochar. <laughs> now, there's definitely no science on, <laughs> you know, I have no way to back this up uh, as in scientific claim or anything um, but you can kind of tell intuitively that oh yeah uh, that would work <laughs> and and anyway you should soak charcoal before before you if you're going to use a lot of hardwood charcoal right you can just buy you know a, a regular you know and just smash it up and it's basically you know you have to make sure you don't get the the briquettes not the ones that are that have the petroleum in them, but real, you know, true hardwood charcoal. They, they sell it, you know, for barbecuing, for a nice high quality barbecuing. I mean, I guess you could get really fancy. You can buy Japanese bincho charcoal, you know, or something like that. But uh, I don't think you really need it. And I think the hardwood charcoal is probably, I haven't seen a cheaper source of biochar, but maybe there is one, I don't know. Maybe you can correct me on that, Steve. I don't know if they're <clears throat> so. You know, I just hardwood charcoal. Buy it right down the, right down the, at Home Depot, and uh, yeah.
And oh, so if you are gonna use charcoal in your mix, which you can use a lot. I think we had a guest here one day who was claiming that you could use probably up to 50%. I forget what his name was. It was an Australian guy. Um, one of our, one of the, one of the people we interviewed on the show, but uh, I wouldn't doubt that you could use 50% charcoal. You could, you can grow plants, enjoy a lot of charcoal, but uh, yeah, if you do use charcoal, you got to definitely pre-wet it because it will soak up a lot of water. You get, you know, if you, if you don't water it well enough. So well, what happens is if it's really not soak charged, it. if it's not charged, it'll start absorbing nutrients. Anyways, exactly. It's going to absorb nutrients out of there anyways. That's exactly right. So, uh, but it is means if you do have charcoal in there, you could throw in a lot more um, nasty organics that would normally piss off the roots, you know, create a, create a really, and I'm not, not talking about aquaponics. I'm talking about regular like container growing or growing in the ground or something like that. If you had a lot of, if you threw a lot of, uh, you know, chicken manure or something like that in there, be real hot, the roots would get all pissed off. But but if you had a bunch of charcoal in there, you could probably get away with. So ingredients like charcoal would allow you to use uh, more concentrated kinds of organic, uh, nutritive organics <laughs> in your mix. So you could experiment. Um, I'd make it definitely good for a, a compost, a custom style compost then. There you go, yeah. Yeah, because it kind of manure. Yeah, it kind of slows things down. I think it kind of keeps it cool. Maybe it's almost has like a cooling effect, uh, which sounds kind of weird because charcoal is a product of something burnt. But yeah. Anyways, yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's all I know about that. <laughs> um, so what um what have you learned about breeding? Uh, you know, and along the different episodes that we've done, we've had quite a few different breeders on them. Oh yeah. Quite a bit. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, I've learned that, oh man, this has been great, you know, being on the show, it's just incredible. I've learned how important, uh, you know, the question of you keep asking it, Steve, but the reason why is because it's real hot button issue, the importance of how to choose a male plant. Um, it's really, uh, everyone wants to know that. So, and I've of course given it a, a lot of thought, but now I'm giving it a lot more thought more recently because of, you know, it does seem to be a really critical question. I think one of the interesting things, the reason why uh, the realization of that is that we've been through a long period where uh, with a lot of breeders making our seed sellers and stuff, making uh, feminized seeds and feminized seeds are really cool actually. And they definitely have their, their use, but you often uh, don't need, for example, you don't need to plant very many of them. Uh, if you, you know, they're, they're generally very uniform, uh, you know, so you're going to, they're not exactly like a little army of clones, but they're similar enough that, uh, you know, four, four or five plants is going to show you the whole span of whatever's going on, pretty much. You know, if you planted 10, you'd probably be sorry. <laughs> you'd be like, oh, what did I do this for? Um, so, but, you know, the males, uh, of course, you know, cannabis is dioecious, right? So 
uh, it's got the two different, you know, set of chromosomes over on the male and a set of chromosomes over on the female. And that ensures a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of variation, variability with each uh, new seed batch made, you know, regular, non-self-pollinated. And I think we're coming out of a period where everybody's realizing, you know, there's also been a backlash. A lot of uh, breeders say, well, I don't like to use feminized seeds for breeding. Um, and, and that could be because of a fear of a lot of them having been made by, uh, from herm hermaphrodites. So in other words, the not legitimate uh, silver nitrate or, you know, some method, stressor method of making a female produce male flowers, but just taking, you know, random, random. Uh, so that, you know, it's probably given a, a given a feminized seeds bad name. But I, I definitely think they have their use. But I think that that's why one of the reasons why we're coming back and a lot of breeders and a lot of regular growers are now sort of looking at the, realizing the importance of using males and female, you know, going regular breeding. Because the ultimate goal always is to keep on getting better. You know what I mean? Uh, or at the very least to halt pro progress at a certain point. Because... It is true sometimes you find these certain traits that, for whatever reason, skip generations and things like that. And so, and maybe you're there in your generation four or five or something. And, you know, it's good to stop at that point, take a clone, take clones of this and clones of that, and keep on cranking new seeds of the combination of that, because that's the, that's the nice place to stop it. So maybe, maybe that's what you want to do. But in general, you're trying to improve, you're looking to get things better, you know, with each, I mean, that's the whole reason to breed is to uh, focus on a certain number of traits that you like and, and steer towards that, you know, so, and really you, you can't do that, you know, by uh, using uh, self-pollination, feminized seeds and things, you know, you have to, you have to use males. And males are really, uh, males are also more likely, I think just like males of, uh, males of everything, uh, they're more likely to be uh, over on the side of the bell curves. They can be more extreme. A lot of times you have a hundred plants, the most, ex very often the most extreme plant in that group is a male. You know, it's uh, extreme maybe in, uh, weird way too, maybe not necessarily a desirable way, <laughs> you know, so, but, but, but then other times maybe a very desirable way. It seems like the males, uh, they vary more in most kinds of seed batches. There's more, there's more really good ones. There's more really sort of bad ones. Whereas most of the females are pretty good. You know what I mean? That's, a, that's what you often see out of a hundred seeds. You often see that scene. So yeah, males are really cool. <laughs> we need to keep the boys around in the breeding. And, I, and I'm glad everybody's getting back into uh, thinking about that, talking about that. We, we were talking about, me and Steve were talking about it the other night at, at, uh, at dinner. And uh, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but that's, I was saying that that's one of the best reasons to have a true strain, a true inbred strain is because a male from that is you know maybe the best choice to make a cross with 
something uh, unrelated, which sometimes you have to do. You have a female clone, you have a select female clone. You don't have any other plants in the family related to her, you just have her. You wanna do something with that. And so you have to make an outcross. And there, the choice of that male is really very important, you know, because that's gonna set the, that's gonna set the, the tone for everything further down from that cross. So choice of that male is, is critical. And yeah, probably the best way to ensure that you're making a good choice is to, is to have one from a, a true breeding strain already because that male is gonna, I don't know the proper terms and things to use. What I say is it represents, you know, a male from a family it represents he, is going to uh, is going to you know influence the traits of that family, and that's good. And of course, and all the other things secondarily that we've always talked about. Many other many other breeders and seed makers have pointed out, looking you know choosing the more vigorous ones, the stem rub, the smells. It's incredible how much you can smell on a plant. You know, what I mean, you can smell the soul of a plant. <laughs> you know just by rubbing on the stem and, and you can absolutely tell what, how it's going to influence. <clears throat> All those things, of course, are very important. But, you know, having a good, knowing he comes from a good family, knowing he comes from a pedigree. So what would, what would be a male that you wouldn't use? Well, supposing you had done something recently with some, with a, a, a very recent, uh, wild hybrid hybridization maybe with a land race and a pakistani hash plant or something like that and some sativa land race and then you're in you know then you did something else maybe or you know these are the seeds you've got if that's the case then you know maybe the f1 maybe some of the males but still you would definitely have to progeny test those and with the f2s those would be really tricky because they're going to be that's where you're going to see a lot of variation and you know that's where you if you're going to try and you know of course a good male out of that group of f2s might be fantastic it might be really exactly what you're looking for but you would definitely want to go with some kind of progeny testing and things like that and if you don't know if you didn't make the original cross if you just got these seeds you know, from someone else, and you don't know how to look at them, then maybe stay away from a male from that batch. <laughs> you know what I mean? That just sounds like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's. that's why don't you? Why don't you explain to the? Since we're on a like a you know a Q and A thing, why don't you explain a little bit about? So some people that haven't got into breeding understand a little bit more about progeny testing. Oh, I just meant progeny testing. Yeah, it means um, growing in, you know, growing out the pos the, the 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 results of those. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's always wonderful to do with that with males. So you basically you would collect the pollen of four, three or four or five different your select males that you think are good, and you're going to pollinate different branches of your female of their sisters with uh, that pollen, and you're going to mark each one of those, so you're gonna be, you know, you're gonna be in their hand pollinating it with a brush and you're gonna mark each one of those branches uh, and with the number of that, you know, saying that that's the number of male. 
what I do is I write on, uh, I take a piece of uh, masking tape and write a little note on the piece of masking tape and wrap it around the base of the branch there. Um, and that could be trouble if some really, you know, uh, short little node <laughs> plants and things like that. But So you may have to modify your methods there. But so basically what you're doing, and then you're going to collect all those, you know, separate seeds and keep them categorized, grow them out, grow a few of them out, four or five, six of them out. And that's going to be enough of each one of the results of those males. And, you know, that's a, that's a really fantastic, it seems like, you know, two steps forward, one step back, but it's really worth it. <laughs> it would really, it really ensures, uh, you know, it, it takes the guesswork out of breeding because that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you'll be able to tell from, you know, five, five seeds, five plants of each one of those, uh, which one is the most suitable one. He's, he's the best one to cross with this, with this female, you know, so. Excellent. That's yeah. That it sounds like, it sounds like a lot of, and it really is only just, you know, when you're doing it, there and, and it isn't really a lot of work because it's really um it's heavy lifting it's really uh um it's valuable uh, you know you know what i mean it's worth the extra time it sounds like uh, it would be extra work but it's not even if just do two or three males two males you know don't even do five your first time just take two you know you got these two this one smells great that one's big and you know beefy so Boom, let's find out which one of these two is the best. And yeah, it's it's not it's not hard. <laughs> any any anybody got any more questions? What are we talking about? Breeding, true breeding, Rose says, Oh, I wasn't even watching. <laughs> A said plant turned Hermy. Gonna get the seeds. I'm gonna press it. True hybridization, true vigor. Yeah, hybrid vigor. First F1 hybrid. You know, um, when you when you first do make a cross uh, between two, the more unrelated the two lines are. Um, <clears throat> and that's one of the, you know, they use that um, horticulturally, that method. I mean, uh, you know, in agriculture, that's, that's how, you know, uh, it's spinach and everything. A lot of these things are, F1 hybrids. Um, the, re the result of it is not only, a, so there's a thing called heterosis. Heterosis is, is hybrid vigor, which means, uh, you know, generally the plants, the results are stronger and bigger, faster growing than any of the, either of the parent lines that they came from. And uh, yeah, it's called heterosis. And uh, that's, uh, that's a really good thing. And the other thing about F1, um, if the true, now you gotta have two actual IBLs, two actual stable lines in order to create uh, an F1 line, which is lacking in variation, which, which is more uniform. So they like that in agriculture. Like obviously they want a whole bunch of little spinach plants, which are all exactly the same size so they can all be picked at the same time. And, you know, and we and in our home gardens don't usually actually want that. 
you know, it's usually more convenient to, you know, growing carrots, just to pick a couple at a time. Beets, you know, beets are a pain in the ass. You want, you want to be able to leave them in the ground. You know, you don't want to, don't want to all of a sudden have a whole pile of beets. But commercially, of course, they do. They, they, they do want to, you know, have this, uh, this uh, uniformity and everything like that. So yeah, playing around with that, with cannabis breeding, uh, it could be fun. There would be, that would be, uh, I, don't, I don't know of any, anybody who's ever made a true F1 in terms of by taking two, uh, you know, real IBLs like that and, and, and you know, making, I haven't, I haven't seen, I, I may, that's not exactly true. I mean, of course we, we have all, but cannabis it always it seems to be pretty variable maybe 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 you're always going to get that variation maybe it wouldn't no you know what i have a feeling all right now i'm totally thinking out loud here i'm sorry but i have a feeling with the right again with the right male and the right female so it with the progeny testing you can find because you can find i mean i got like i was talking about the, the other week you can you can make stability with a double hybrid i've seen it before I've seen, uh, you know, an amazingly stable seed line uh, as a result of take, crossing one thing with another thing and then outcrossing again to another thing. And just by using the exact right plants, you can get, so yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Breeding plants, everybody's got to get into it. Now that we're all, and this is the best thing about everybody being out in contact with each other. You know, this is the whole thing that was so bad about the, you know, for us, the guys that have been doing it for so long back in the day was the no communication, was an inability for us to even, even talk to each other, you know. But now the possibility to be involved in, you know, much bigger breeding schemes, group breed. I remember it was during, uh, it was sometime during the 70s, wasn't it? Or, and we didn't we do the uh it was rodale rodale uh was a project to uh breed white seeded amaranth amaranthus and uh they sent out seeds to you know hundreds of volunteers people who read organic gardening magazine <laughs> and uh you know we, we all looked for white seeded amaranth <laughs> So yeah, group breeding projects, man. That's that's where we're getting to now with cannabis, and it's gonna it's gonna take off. We're gonna we're gonna together together we're gonna breed some amazing <laughs> amazing genetics in the next ten or twenty years. It's really you think you think the last forty years have been good for cannabis genetics, and they have been. They have been really great, but the next forty are gonna be really. Because cannabis is really variable and it's just getting going, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing like corn or something like that. People are worried that people are often, you know, they're, they're, they're paranoid of inbreeding depression and stuff with cannabis. I don't even know if it's possible, man. I'm growing that some cherry bomb now. I don't know. It was F13 when I was trying to just start distributing out in the early 2000s. I'd already inbred it, inbred it exclusively with no crosses and nothing for 13 generations. I don't even know what it's at now that that's been with gas and Swami and these guys, you know, 
but it's, you know, incredibly big, healthy, gigantic, healthy plants. You know, it's like, oh my God. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's any danger of inbreeding depression in cannabis, but there is danger of breeding yourself into the corner. And that just means making the wrong, making the wrong choices. You know what I mean? Um, and losing shit that you had before that you liked and everyone's experienced that I did that you can't it's you know you 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 have to this is why I'm talking about progeny testing this is really the only way to avoid especially in the early generations after something like a cross you make a cross a hybridization between two things that are really unrelated you really got to watch out the choices that you make in those first couple generations you can easily lose the the, tra the very traits that you liked and you know that's the that's the real thing of breeding is focusing on on many different traits all at one time um the more things you notice and and that's a for me was a long it would have been a lot better to be able to talk to people and be in communication with other breeders and other growers more you know throughout the decades for me i had you know kind of regret having to figure out a lot of it on my own because whenever you talk to anyone they they turn you on to something anyone you know turn you on to something new that you hadn't noticed or seen and cannabis plants are incredibly complex so uh viewing uh, you know getting smelling seeing tasting feeling understanding all the different traits that can be obviously all these can be manipulated uh, genetically and that's exactly what when you start as you start to get better at breeding it's because you're looking at more and more and more traits you don't let anything you don't let anything go by the wayside <laughs> you know what i mean keep it keep it all in there <laughs> yeah. And that, that requires, you know, memory. I mean, you have to focus on, you have to remember what you, what it was you started out to do, you know, and, and if you're not getting what you, you know, not saying you have to be like Beethoven. I mean, you know, you don't have to throw away a month's worth of work and, ah, oh, that's a shit, you know, or in breeding case, it's generally throwing away maybe a year or a couple of years worth of work, but, you know, it is important to be honest with yourself about whether you're getting, whether you're achieving what you go, what your goals are. So it's really good. There's where writing things down. And I was paranoid to write. I would write. I always took notes because I had always done that with with guppies and with bettas and with everything else that I bred. But when I started taking notes with cannabis in New York City in the mid '70s, I was getting a little paranoid. You know what I mean? And I uh, every year or two i'd rip off rip up my notes and throw them away you know and then i kept on trying to figure out ways to memorize you know so i would use I had labels labels would trigger my memory and i'd try to commit things to memory but i don't recommend people to do this at all i recommend you write everything down you get your journal and your you know you write down all your goals write down all the traits that you can see and observe and smell and everything uh, because then you'll learn much faster than I did. <laughs> anyway, how's that for a rant on breeding? Any, any more questions? <laughs>
<laughs> Mark back at all, or did he uh, get children? I go. Boiling beets, yeah. Yeah, like beets. Beets is the be- the first of uh, the beginning of Beethoven. Speaking of Beethoven, <laughs> right? Isn't that that's the beginning of? Uh, okay. Yeah, I think we're gonna uh, wrap the show up. I'm starting to get pretty pretty beat from the, from the antibiotics, so um, we had a really awesome. good show. A brief. I apologize for being briefer than normal, but uh, yeah, such is life this week. And um, we'll try to do some kind of live event Thursday or Friday uh, for those of you guys that are around. Maybe even Saturday night, we'll do a little bit of a live thing as well. We'll see what's going on. Uh, and then again. Please check it out. If you want to come check out the four-day Alcapon and Cannabis class, you can check out more information at apmjclass.com. Uh, if you want to come, you know, check out the class. Um, if you are showing up and paying in person, please, please, please email me and tell me you're coming um, so that I know that you're coming so that I know how many booklets and how much food to make. Um, it really helps me out. Uh, and uh, much love to... Um, to Shango Los, with awesome uh, interview over at uh, Shaping Fire. Um, check out Marty over at AP Meds. Um, uh, how do people find you there, Roger? You can find me at ilovegrowingmarijuana.com on Instagram uh, and uh, Roger, under Roger Latewood um, uh, and uh, Facebook. And I do monitor. I don't go in there a lot at this point because I've been pretty busy, but uh, I, I'm, you can... If you post something at me, I can see it on the, um, the cannabis growers group that Steve and Marty have. Or I actually, I'm not, well, it's a whole bunch of people that actually have that group. But um, And I do have an account at Cannabuzz, but I just hadn't had time to get over there and do anything with it. So shout out to our, I think it's JR, right, that has Cannabuzz? Yep. Yeah, JR Token. He's got Cannabuzz to, to let you get totally into, absorbed into Cannabuzz as opposed to all the stuff that you have to wade through on Instagram. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, cannabis friendly. Cannabis giving us a, a place for cannabis growers uh, to, to have without getting harassed or worried about getting taken down. Definitely check that out if you're lo- you're you're looking for a, an alternative place that's just uh, all uh, cool cannabis homies. And um, what about you, Mr. Green Jeans? How do people find you? How do people get seeds if they want to get some of that wonderful uh, cherry bomb? Oh yeah, uh, greenjeansgarden.com. Uh, let me see. Don't I have a? Oh yeah, there it is. I just put the link into the into YouTube. And yeah, thanks a lot. Just uh, email me there. I'm gonna. I I gotta get the uh, get the cart shopping cart up and everything. But things things have been going good. I'm cranking a lot of seeds. <laughs> so yeah, buy my seeds. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. It was great. Great questions. Awesome. Yeah, it was a lot of great questions. And uh, sorry for the show being a little brief. I'm just, I'm pretty tired from uh, from being sick. So we'll uh, we'll catch you guys again uh, next week, again, um, or sometime later this week. Uh, again, you can check us out at, uh, check me out at Potent Ponics on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio, all the different places. And uh, we'll be back again uh soon and uh yeah thanks for listening sorry i'm really tired (laughs) from the beds cheers guys much love have a great week